Я не робот. Нет. Я не робот. <laughs> Just simple. I not robot. <laughs>So first of all, I'll introduce myself. My name's James Hanover. I am originally from New York State. I uh, grew up in New York State and uh, in and around New York City in Connecticut, Pennsylvania. I've uh, been living in Virginia for the past 21 years. Moved here in uh, 2002 and have been out in Fauquier County in Warrington, Virginia for the past 17 years since 2006. I played a small part in the Cold War uh, when I was a graduate student at the University of Leningrad, Leningrad State University. Uh, I was interviewed on Soviet national television as one of the 47 Americans at the time studying in the Soviet Union. And I was the first person to admit that there were shortages publicly on Soviet television, which created something of an uproar. And the shortage itself was actually rather humorous because they asked me what my first impression of the Soviet Union was. And the first thing that came to mind was that there was no toilet paper and they immediately stopped filming. But it was too late because the rest of the Soviet public had seen it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So it was live television. It was live television. Yes. Well, that's an interesting story, and it leads me into um, the reason why I wanted to talk to you for the purposes of this podcast, because I know you've traveled extensively in Europe, as well as to Ukraine and Russia and elsewhere, and so the focus of this AI-themed discussion is 
um, I'd like to talk to you about culture and language. And language is deeply intertwined with culture and history. And humans have the ability to understand and interpret language within its cultural and historical context. And while AI algorithms may lack the contextual knowledge and awareness necessary to accurately interpret language in specific cultural or historical contexts, um, my question is, will they one day make differences in language obsolete? Well, we've already seen a sort of a universal translator spring up from multiple tools. I mean, anyone can go to Google Translate and speak in a phrase, and it can auto-detect the language of that phrase and translate it to English. I've tried this before myself, and it works reasonably well, mainly due to a combination of machine and deep learning to use uh, predictive modeling in terms of speech. But in terms of being able to compose long narratives in multiple languages, I've yet to really witness uh, the success of that in AI. Moreover, I've seen a lot of interesting uh, parody translations that that kids post uh, on various social media platforms where they take, let's say, a song like The Sound of Silence, and after several iterations of putting it through multiple languages, uh, it comes out completely different and almost like a Mad Libs um, narrative, uh, which is hilariously funny to listen to. So I, I, I don't know that we're there yet. It's true that, that, that when one can ask something, let's say it's more of a matter of what, what is the data set that, that your AI is pulling from? So if I'm just generically using, say, a chat GPT account, which is the source of the OpenAI project itself, then I'm going to get very generic results. But if I'm focusing my AI platform whether I'm you know, using the OpenAI platform and focusing the data sets, which is what most apps do, then you can get better results based off of whatever sort of deep learning I put it through to begin with. So that's, that's really my take on it and my experience with it thus far. Now, you, you bring up a good point about the translation um, technologies that are available out there, such as the Google Translate. And you're talking about where things stand currently. But what about um, the future of language and AI? And do you see there potentially... So, for example, with ChatGPT... Um, it's kind of a world database or world algorithm in many ways. So I'm wondering if, besides the translation aspect of the, the tools that are available, do you see there being a potential flattening or um, kind of a, a potential sort of globalization of language in a way um, where language and culture may matter less, you know, maybe 10, 20 years from now than they do now? Well, I think we've already seen through globalization a certain um, exposure to culture and also a certain global culture, one that, let's say, supersedes local culture. Um, and with increased connectivity, 
um, both in terms of proximity, um, ability to travel and the ability to connect with people on multiple levels. I think that when you're able to connect with someone based on a knowledge of their culture, whether or not you know the culture itself very well or the language itself very well, rather, if you have some sort of cultural reference, for instance, I find I speak very little, if any, just a couple of phrases in Japanese that having read some Japanese literature like Death in Midsummer, a um, few other interesting novels that I read, uh, those sorts of references can create a connection that is really difficult for someone to replace on, a, on an interpersonal level. Uh, this is true whether or not I speak the language when I'm speaking to someone from a different culture. Um, what does have tend to happen and what has happened over the past hundred years in various, various iterations and various different ways has been that as global empires have risen and fallen and global commerce has taken on a whole new set of roles where people are communicating across cultures, um, there has been a kind of a standard culture that's kind of taken over, if you will. Um, it's, it's a standard culture of business, for instance. Um, Oliver Wendell Holmes actually was a great, great quote, is that uh, commerce is a great equalizer. And I think we've seen some of that happen. Um, I think we've also seen some dilution of cultures as cultures take on the attributes of that global uh, communication. I think we'll continue to see that and it will be, it'll be interesting to see how that develops because uh, there's, there's a lot of, a lot more, a lot more communication that people I think uh, can do and will do. I think people will, will be more connected than ever. They're already more connected than ever. We're already generating um, massive amounts of data across the internet every second. Ten years ago, IBM had invented a chip called the uh, it was called the True North chip, and it had um, it had sixty four processors on it, uh, physical processors, each of which had a neural net, a neuron, and they predicted that at that time that the cognitive ability of that chip was about the same as a honeybee. Um, I haven't really kept up with it with things like qubits and um, um, and and quantum computing. But I would suspect that, you know, if I if I were talking about food, for instance, um, how would that translate? How would AI understand that that I like pizza or burgers better than tacos or vice versa um, based on my reaction, based on things like facial images? And I'm using a quite simple, um, simple sort of example. It's one of those things where with tone in English, I think you could see you know, what's the most important item in a sentence um, and what makes it important or what makes it important in an idea. Um, that's something I'm, I'm not really sure that AI is capable of doing that today, but who knows? Uh, there are a lot of tools out there that we're not aware of that are being worked on. Yeah, and you, um, you, know, you, you kind of bring up a good point. Uh, it makes me think about um, like the word love. You, know, you could say, I love you or I love pizza or I love watching baseball. You know, the word love can mean a lot of things. And so obviously we sort of understand, you know, the context, 
uh, of the way somebody's using words uh, in a sentence or um, based on the situation, that type of thing. Um, but language is um, it's pretty complicated, and you know it takes it takes many many years to understand you know the meaning of words because sometimes people are using words and they're not your understanding of how you, words are used is based on a lot of factors and it's not necessarily the least bit straightforward if you had to try to explain it to somebody and i was wondering because of you because of your background i know that you're you're fluent in russian correct correct and so it's a similar to experience that i have to spanish where i'm also proficient in spanish but um, again, I get a lot more practice with Spanish than I do with Russian. And so, so there, are, there are times when I'll be thinking in both languages when I'm so, trying to speak one. So, so kind of separate from the, um, the AI component of it, just thinking about language in general, or if you're speaking in a foreign language, if you're over in Spain or you're traveling, um, you know, as you know, language is not, um, there's just a lot of factors involved. Well, I think that there are times when a machine can pick something up that you might miss. It required an incredible amount of brain power and hyper awareness to stay on top of a conversation. And this is true uh, and made more complex by, let's say, talking to somebody from Murcia in Spain and talking to someone from Cuba at the same time. And is speaking incredibly fast and the Murciana, Murciano is speaking, you know, not quite so fast, but using certain pronunciations and certain um, expressions that a Mexican just would not understand so, or a Cuban wouldn't understand. And so, yeah, there are times when I think when when you've got a, a really good, let's say, Google, Google Translate, for instance, is a, is a decent tool, um, but it doesn't necessarily pick up on those regional translations as quickly but there are times when if when a word that's pronounced too fast might actually come through and you might miss it in the moment might have to ask someone to repeat themselves or um or, or rephrase what they're saying as part of the sister cities project in the 1990s early 90s and I was also involved in the in the late 80s as well um, one of the things we did was to engage in cultural exchanges and um, one of those cultural exchanges involved a whitewater rafting trip um, in Siberia along the Siberian border actually uh, and what I was saying we were talking about how AI processes things differently and how do how do we account for regionalisms and various affectations in speech and and so I was using the example, uh, not so much as Ukrainians, although you, the Ukrainians do have a tendency to have the same, um, they do pronounce their short O's. So anytime you have an O sound in Russian that's in the middle of a word, it's a short O, almost like an A. But in Siberia and in Ukraine, it's, they pronounce it as a long O, like instead of you know, and which is good in Russian. But the O at the end is pronounced, so is a long O at the end, but everything, if you wouldn't know it, but all of those vowels are O's in that word. But um, is how they'd say it in Siberia. So it's, a, it's sort of like one of those things that, that 
AI would have a tough time adjusting to, I think. Um, but as it progresses through deep learning, I think it will eventually hit that. In some cases, it already has. Um, I think it also mentioned how um, how my own experience with AI translation um, was overall, while very good, there were certain things that were missed. And that continues, I think, to happen. So we're, we're not at the stage where we can yet have a universal translator, but we're, we're pretty darn close. <laughs> I was, I was asking you about, um, the potential flattening or globalization of language um, and how AI, um, whether it's, it's you know, we've been focusing on chat GPT and, and I don't want to exclusively just focus on that or, or translation tools, but wondering what your thoughts were regarding uh, the globalization of language um, and, and how you know, you, you talked a little bit about uh, how the internet has already done this to a certain extent, uh, and you know the globalization, the economic globalization. But I was curious about your thoughts on um, AI's potential globalization of language. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's that's a very good question as well, because for in various generations, um, globalization. If you look at back to that, the trend towards globalization starts with the British Empire. And that was also a linguistic hegemony, if you will, that made English lingua franca throughout the globe. Even today, with Brexit and even after Brexit, the official language of the EU is English. Um, the official language of the British Commonwealth, or known, now known as simply the Commonwealth, is English. Um, and English has, and will probably continue to remain so for some time, the global language. And while its native speaker population is not nearly that, say, of Chinese or Hindi, um, its worldwide usage outranks all of those and um, continues to do so. People who can speak English and who do speak English um, continue to do so at, at rates way higher than any other language because it is the global language of commerce it's the global language of of empire um, through empire it became the global language of commerce now as far as ai globalizing the ability of people to communicate um, effectively i think we'll see more and more of that and and things like regionalisms will continue to exist but tend to fade over time um, it, we, there are still provincial cultures that maintain their unique nature, but it's becoming harder and harder for them to do so over time as language develops and, and people travel more and people don't stay in the same place as much as they used to. So with the Internet, um, you no longer need physical mobility to get about and, and meet people. So you can do it from anywhere and any time. Uh, whereas, you know, in the past, globalization was dependent on modalities of transport. Um, the Internet has become a modality of communication transport that is universal and it's available. Um, and 
there's no restrictions on who you can contact pretty much except for some that are some sort of like governmental firewalls that are set up in certain countries but for the most part you can pretty much contact anyone you want anywhere so sort of on the flip side of that where we're talking about the um the globalization of language that also means that certain languages are um, tend to fade away. I remember traveling over in um, in Ireland when I was in college, and uh, there was I remember um, there was this effort afoot to try to keep Gaelic alive, and you would see signs in Gaelic and. And I remember reading some stories about they were trying to push Gaelic to be taught in schools, but it was an uphill battle because, uh, you know, in English is is kind of like, you know, sort of the, the, the universal language. Um, and so when you do have sort of a, a globalization of language in, in some ways, it does mean that uh, certain less... Uh, modern languages such as Gaelic do tend to um, be the ones that are going to fade away, um, much to the dismay of, you know, some of the people who are trying to uh, hang on to those traditions. Yes, agreed. And I think we've already seen it happen. Uh, it, it, as long ago as the 70s, there was a language in Switzerland, Romanish, in Switzerland um, that started to go into rapid decline. And there's today, I think, fewer than only a few thousand people are left speaking it. But it's the only distinctly Swiss language. However, because the language of commerce is English and because Switzerland has Italian and French and German populations, um, the Romanish uh, is sort of faded off into obscurity. Um, and it's it's fascinating that to see that is kind of sad in some cases. Um, Scottish Gaelic is a similar sort of situation. Um, and what's fascinating there is that Scottish Gaelic actually has similarities to modern Danish. Um, fishermen who fished the North Sea from Uland or Jutland and those who fish from uh, Scotland oftentimes they overlap in their range of, of catch and they communicate with each other in their own native tongues perfectly because in Scotland you say things like, what say you? What say you? And of course in Danish it's Vesiadu, but in Northern Yuland it's uh, what say you? <laughs> it's almost the same. What say you? It's almost the same as uh, someone speaking a, a Scottish brogue of a mixture of Scottish Gaelic and English. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, um, along the same lines, um, we were previously talking about, uh, you know, friendship and in, in language and in, in storytelling and social settings. Um, besides the kind of the cultural aspects of of language and conversations, um, the uh, you know you, the, the friendship and the joint experiences. Uh, play a large part into uh, conversations and dialogue and um, and the ability to effectively uh, effectively communicate with somebody because oftentimes um, 
you know, when, you know, as I'd said in the past, when you, uh, when you see somebody that you haven't seen in a while, you know, you, you often spend the first several minutes, um, catching up, um, trying to, you know, find out what, what have they been up to recently since the last time you saw them. Um, and you know, there's oftentimes, uh, uh, you'll tell a story about something that happened or somewhere you've been. Um, there, you know, oftentimes um, there's laughing and humor involved and and that type of thing. And I and I kind of have have thought about, um, you know, from AI might be a long way off from this perspective as well of of kind of um, being able to harness all of the um, all of those direct one-on-one social elements of 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 conversation and communication that are um, you know that 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 are going to be lost in a machine translation or machine generated text and that type of thing Yes, and uh, it's interesting you should mention that because there's a feature in Alexa, and many people point to Alexa as a kind of a rudimentary AI because, uh, you know, Alexa is designed just as an example, whether it be uh, Hey Google or, or Alexa. There's a feature that is designed to act as a social chat bot with you if you're wanting to have a conversation. And I don't know if you've ever tried it, but my son has. And it produces pretty hilarious results. It's more about getting you to getting you interested in various things that are perhaps for sale or <laughs> or, um, or or trying to spark a conversation around specific uh, characters in video games, among other things. But nothing yet really that approximates or even approaches the, the sort of banter that occurs when people see each other and they catch up or they have, let's say, I mean, you, I don't think you'll ever get to the point where you have two very close friends who kind of can almost predict what the other's saying or is about to say and, and, and have their own sort of inside jokes. That's obviously never going to be uh, achievable in AI, but there's been an attempt to provide people with an interactive chat. And I've seen it work. It's quite fascinating. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried it, but We've, my my the, daughters the, have played around with it a little bit, and uh, it can you can ask it to tell you jokes and and that type of thing as well. But to me, um, like you like you say, it's 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 a little bit uh, stiff and canned and uh, not very. Uh, it it feels uh, forced in some ways to me, um, but. Uh, I think it's interesting what you're saying about the the uh, predictive nature of how oftentimes if if you're talking to somebody you know whether it's your wife or your kids or somebody that you know well you know you'll kind of finish each other's sentences um yeah and and i think there's a, there's an aspect of that that has to do with uh language where um we are constantly without realizing it, your brain is constantly um predicting what words are going to come next. And so I think sometimes where humor comes into play is when somebody says something that's unexpected, that's not sort of following the the pattern uh, that you might expect the next word they're, they're going to say. And, sure. and, and at the same time, uh, when, when 
when people when the, the conversation sort of is going away you're expecting you are uh without realizing it um uh, predicting what they're going to say next and um but but only only can you really do that i think your your brain is only really able to do that uh, successfully and efficiently when you know somebody well mm-hmm. um and, and a robot you know talking to uh, alexa or or google or siri or whatever is not going to be able to um necessarily predict you know the uh potentially millions of different ways the conversation might go unless you're jarvis the fictional ai in uh, iron man (laughs) (laughs) that's right we were last night we were watching uh interstellar um the matthew mcconaughey film did you ever see that no i've never seen it Although you sparked my it's, interest, because I did kind of want to see it when it came it, out. It's a great movie. It's a great movie. I think you would really enjoy it. Um, it's just one of those uh, thought-provoking um, movies that you just keep thinking about uh, after the fact. But uh, there's a uh, uh, th- there's a couple of uh, characters that there are uh, these like AI robot type characters, and um, they. Uh, they're voiced. One of them is uh, his name's Case, and the other one is Tars, and they're voiced by you know obviously they're just voiced by actors, but um, they are these AI robots, and they um, you know they're 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 able to to communicate in in many ways the the same ways that humans do, and there's there's one kind of funny. Um, moment when Matthew McConaughey's character is 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 talking to the robot and asking, um, you know, if he's if he's being honest, and he says something about he's he's being ninety percent truthful, and he's and he <laughs> says, well, why ninety percent? What about the other ten percent? He says, well, you know, it's uh, it's not um, considered diplomatic to always be one hundred percent truthful. You know, at least ten percent of the time you have to sort of fib um or 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 hold back i guess <laughs> and I, I thought that's kind of funny that it was like programmed into the ai uh that you have to only be 90 percent truthful <laughs> that's really it's one of those uh the opposite end of that is when someone goes on a rant and say and then you say well sarcastically so why don't you tell me how you really feel <laughs> that's right yeah sometimes it's like too much too much of the truth <laughs> of the podcast i am not a robot um does that translate uh into russian do you think it does yes and would that have a similar like uh, meaning or context do you think oh i am not a robot first of all it's interesting to note that in russian there is no present tense usage typically of the verb to be I not robot is how you say. I not robot. <laughs> okay, so it would just be I am. I am not robot. Yeah, yeah, robot. Yet, 
Myan ye robot. Just simple. I not robot. <laughs> and it's funny to think about the affectations of language, how there are certain things that are implied, but there is actually um, a, a conjugable form of the verb to be in Russian, yeast, and it's used in Polish constantly. Um, the Poles use it, and the Russians do not. Uh, the Ukrainians typically don't use it, um, and the Russians hardly ever do unless there's a specific emphasis on being, but being is acknowledged as sort of uh, a given. Right. Um, the fact that you're there is means you're there. So ya nie robot is one way they would say that, or the only way they would typically say it in conversation. They wouldn't say ya nie jest robot, though. They would say ya nie robot. And um, it's funny, uh, you know, you think about language and how things get done. I mean, the the verb to be is a very important verb in most languages. And in Spanish, there's even the, and in a lot of Romance languages, there's a being of state, a state of being versus a general condition, right? Um, and that's interesting because in, in Russian that gets conveyed more on an adjectival level. Um, for instance, ya bolnoy um, is, uh, when you say ya bolnoy, you're saying that you're mentally ill or generally ill, you know, as opposed to mnie plocha, I mean, I'm not feeling well. <laughs> It came to me I, one day when I was uh, having to, uh, I was on a web form and, and it asked me, you know, whether I was a robot or not and saying, I am not a robot. And so I had to check the box and it just kind of uh, struck me one day. I was like, you know, this would be the good name of a podcast because yeah. uh, <laughs> it's really kind of just harnesses the essence of the, uh, the theme of this, of this series of what I was trying to to put together in that, um, you know, we are not the, uh, we cannot all be, uh, boiled down to, um, you know, machine language, you know, to code. Yeah. Uh, well, I have a good friend who is, uh, he was a PhD in uh, neurobiology and, um, neuroscience and was a professor at, um, Duke university and, uh, university of Connecticut and university of Vermont in his career and was nominated for a Nobel prize actually on the, um, possible development of a cure for the, um, bio for, for, uh, neurological deafness, uh, together with, a, another close friend of his unbeknownst to them. They were, I, we all knew each other in high school through a church youth group and, he, uh, both two of these gentlemen, one became a member of the Salk Institute in neuroscience in Seattle, and the other became, you know, also went into neuroscience, neither of them knowing they went into it and ended up collaborating um, on neurological deafness later on in their careers. But what's really fascinating to me is, you know, when you talk about ones and zeros versus what happens in the synapse and, and what happens in an actual neuron as opposed to a neural net. Um, because they're, you know, sort of trying to approximate that. It, it really is all those ones and zeros um, and qubits, which is the next level of quantum computing, where you have multiple states of, of, of Boolean logic that go beyond Boolean logic. Uh, I think that's where you're starting to see an approximation or an approach that we're computing is starting to attempt to hit the same level that neurons can. And... Uh, it's going to be a wild ride, but you're right. There's something in there in there's something in the spirit that 
you can't have in a robot. And I've always bristle at the notion that I'm having to prove that I'm not a robot, but understanding the abuses that people use for things like robotic process automation to approximate what humans would do and what humans have to do to try and make tasks easier overall is being abused in certain forums. And uh, it becomes necessary for you to prove that you're not a robot. <laughs> Thank you to the Air Force Strings and solo violinist, Master Sergeant Mark Dorshev, to Epidemic Sound, and to sound engineer Nathan Ray. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Jeremy Ray. 